Well, this past summer, uh, my wife Jill and I had the privilege, really, of going over to Germany to spend two weeks with some friends of ours. I've got a photograph of us here at a coffee shop. Uh, you guys, many of you know Jill sitting next to me, and then that's Sabina and Jörg. Uh, Sabina and Jörg. Uh, by the way, Sabina and Jill have been friends since they were 13 years old, if you can believe it. And they've lived in Germany, and we live here, and uh, they, Jill and, and Sabina have been pen pals for all those years. And so we got to go over there, spend two weeks with them. They were so lovely. They just, they brought us all around southern Germany, which if you know anything about Germany, it means they brought us all around Bavaria, right? And uh, so I've got some fun photos to share with you. Uh, the next photo is that we were in Munich. That's sort of like the city square there in Munich, and that fancy building in the background is the is the courthouse, actually, and uh, just a spectacular building there. And the next picture is uh, a picture of the Rhine River. We took a Rhine River cruise, a one-day cruise on the Rhine River. The vineyards, you, you've heard of Rhine wine. Well, it's all from this area. And uh, you go around every bend, and there's a new castle that I'm like taking pictures of this castle and that castle, and some of them are occupied and some of them are not occupied. That one was not occupied, but absolutely spectacular uh, place. And, uh, and then we, we went to, I think the next picture is, uh, oh yeah, Jurg and I enjoying an ice cream. So I splurged a little bit. We splurged a little bit, but enjoyed uh, some, some sweet treats. And then we went to the uh, Mercedes-Benz Museum. Look at that sweet Mercedes-Benz. <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, of course a classic. And uh, uh, notice the door in the front. You actually enter the car in the front, turn around, sit down, the door closes, the steering wheel comes, and uh, pretty cool old car there. Um, if that one doesn't suit your fancy, maybe you'd want to do this BMW. That's their latest and greatest sports car. Get this, all electric. Totally electric sports car, like does zero to 5,000 in like, you know, two seconds. But uh, that's a joke. For those but, uh, you know, over 100,000 euros for that bad boy. I forget how much it was, but it was a lot of money. But what a sweet-looking car that is. Um, visited some churches. I took a picture of one of these domes. I just, you know, up looking at these domes. This is all hand-painted artwork you see all around the edges there. I mean, just super ornate. And, I mean, Germany is absolutely beautiful. Such greatness there. As I thought about it, I thought, Germany just might be the birthplace of brilliance. I mean, there is a lot of smart people in Germany. Like, take, uh, take Mercedes-Benz. Karl Benz. Did you know that Karl Benz, who's German, was the equivalent to Henry Ford in the United States? At the exact same time, he's making cars. He's actually, there's maybe a little feud like who got started first, but Carl Benz started the Mercedes-Benz company way back then. And uh, at the same time, Henry Ford was starting them here. And then, uh, then, of course, a guy that worked with Carl Benz, his name was uh, Ferdinand Porsche. Yeah, the Porsche car company. He branched off and has his own little sports car going on. Uh, how about this name? Johann Adam Birkenstock. Yes, of course, the Birkenstock sandal. You know when that company started? 1774. That is one old company right there. Uh, we've got these brothers, Adolf and Rudolf Dessler. Uh, they kind of had a little feud going on. They kind of like, well, who can have a better company? So Rudolf Dessler started Puma. 
you know, the tennis shoe company. You know what Adolf started? Adidas. Adidas and Puma, German companies. And by the way, you don't say Adidas in Germany. You, they'll spot you right away. You must be American saying Adidas. It's Adidas. So if you really want to impress your friends, you can say, I'm wearing Adidas. You know, They'll think you're a little weird, but that's actually the right way to say it. Um, take composers uh, in Germany. I mean, you know, you've got Bach. You've got Beethoven. You've got Brahms. Of course, that's only the Bs. There's plenty of others. You've got mathematicians, you've got philosophers, you've got artists, you've got scientists. Matter of fact, you might recognize this last name, Friedrich Bayer. Friedrich Bayer invented aspirin. That's why we have Bayer aspirin today. Uh, athletics, I mean, the, their soccer team is phenomenal. Uh, and of course, in my little neck of the woods, great theologians have come out of Germany. I mentioned a few weeks ago Martin Luther. Uh, you've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, Rudolf Bultmann, Paul Tillich. These are names that I would recommend, recognize. Maybe, maybe you do too. Um, and then while we were there, we visited what's called the Eagle's Nest. I've got a picture of the Eagle's Nest here. I don't know if you're familiar with the Eagle's Nest, but uh, back before World War II, it was actually a compound of many buildings around this mountain. This is only one of two buildings remaining because this was the cradle of the Third Reich. This, was the, this is where Nazism in Germany began in World War II. This is where they schemed on how to systematically destroy the Jews. This is where it was birthed, and this is where it was planned out. And all those buildings that stood around there uh, actually had a tunnel system that went in all of, in between all of them. Here's Jurg standing outside of the entrance to these, this tunnel system. You go in there, and you can see on the sides there where you can read about what happened and, and uh, World War II history, and, and it was quite fascinating. And uh, we go in the tunnel, and these tunnels, I mean, this is not just tunnels. This is like an underground city. There's like uh, huge rooms, like conference rooms, there's uh, like bedrooms, there's bathrooms, there's kitchens, there's dining rooms, <coughs> all underneath the mountain uh, where they can hide out during World War II. And uh, actually, after reading the, all the history and you go into the tunnel and they got like documentary movies shown, like World War II movies shown of all the atrocities of Nazis back then, uh, and I, it ended up being so overwhelming, I like had to get out of the tunnel. I had to get out of there. I had to get outside. Jill and I went outside, and we just had to look. I just had to look at the beauty of the surrounding area. These beautiful uh, Alps uh, all around this area, um, <clears throat> and I got to thinking: How can a beautiful people, an absolutely brilliant people, be sucked into the deception of Adolf Hitler? And his cronies like Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels and Herbert Goring and Martin Bormann and others that were around Hitler. If the majority of an entire nation were able to be deceived, is it possible that every single one of us is vulnerable to being deceived ourselves? The answer to that question is absolutely 
Yes. Matter of fact, we, we have experienced deception in our lives. I mean, in real, real simple ways. And it's painful. We, it's not fun when you realize you've been deceived. It's not fun. Like take, for instance, um, you, buy a, you buy a new blender, right? And on the, in the blender, that little booklet that tells you all about the blender says it's a one-year warranty. And you're like, great, you know, one-year warranty, that's fine. Well, you know, you've had the blender a little while, and, and it breaks down before the year is up. So you bring it into the store, and you say, well, I'm pretty sure this is under warranty, you know, it's a one-year warranty. And so they say, well, let me see. And they bring out that little book, and they read the little fine print. And they say, oh, well, what broke on this is actually not under warranty. Uh, and right away, you think to yourself, wait a minute. When they sold me on the one-year warranty, and now I bring it in, and they're not going to fix it. It's not covered under the warranty. You feel like you've been deceived, don't you? Have you ever been there? I've been there. Like, wait a minute, that's not right. All right, that's simple. Let's go a little bit deeper. Um, you're single, right? And you meet someone that, that you're thinking, pretty special. <laughs> I think there might be something here. You know, I think we might got something. And uh, you, you start dating, and, and as you're dating, uh, you're like, yeah, I think I really like her. <laughs> I think she's someone special. Or for a woman, you know, I think he's pretty neat. He's pretty nifty. <laughs> and you, you kind of get to know each other, and you start getting a little bit more comfortable with one another. And, and then about a year goes by, and there's something about the relationship that's it's just not healthy. You know, it's just not good. And and you start to evaluate, and you think to yourself, wait a minute here. The person I met a year ago is not the person I'm dating today. Something switched. And I can't put my finger on it, but you feel like you've been deceived. You ever been there? Deception shows up in so many forms and fashions. But we're in this series entitled, Loving fearlessly. It's a series through 2nd and 3rd John. The Apostle John wrote three letters. We're covering the second and the third of those three. And as we continue through 2nd John this morning, we're going to see that if we're going to love fearlessly, then it would only make sense that we would help each other to not be deceived, that we would avoid deception that we would defend each other against it. As we finish up this second letter, and then next week we'll go into the third letter, we will see how we can love each other fearlessly by making sure that we don't get sucked into deception. So last week, we only covered the first five verses of 2 John, and so we're going to pick it up here in 2 John verse 6. There's only one chapter in 2 John. So now we're in verse 6. John writes this. He says this, And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. This is love, that we walk according to the commandments. Notice that's plural. And then he switches. This is the commandment. That's singular. And as you read that, you might think, well, what is it? Is it that we... That we have a lot of commandments or more than one commandment? Or is it one commandment if we're going to love well, if we're going to love fearlessly? And 
John says, I've laid this out to you all the way from the beginning. When we started out on this thing, when we established this church, that this is, uh, this is what we started with. This is how we know what love is. By walking in the commandments. And this is the commandment. What John was referring to is what he remembers when he walked with Jesus. You remember when John and Jesus were together, and all the disciples actually were together, there were some religious leaders, Pharisees they called them, and one of them was a lawyer, and he tried to trap Jesus with a question by asking him, so what's the greatest commandment? Remember this? And remember Jesus' reply? John was right there to remember what, what Jesus replied. Go with me to Matthew's Gospel. It's actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're going to cover it in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. When Jesus was asked that question, He responded this way. He said to him in verse 37 of Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. All the Old Testament, all the law can be summed up in these two. Love God and love one another. And then on that love one another part, the Apostle Paul elaborated on it even further. If you go over to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, beginning at verse 8, Paul writes these words. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, which means wanting something that somebody else has. And if there's any other commandments, all these are examples of the commandments, but if there's any more that you want to add to that, it's all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. In other words, love doesn't deceive ever. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All the commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor. As yourself. When we talk about loving fearlessly, we're saying this is what our theme for the year has to be because God's Word tells us to love each other. And fearlessly loving one another is the weapon that we have to use against any deception that we may encounter. To go at it to love each other well. So let me love on you a little bit <laughs> as I help us first of all this morning to figure out how to spot deception. How can we spot deception? Go back to 2 John. 2 John in verse 7. It says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Many deceivers have gone out. There's a lot of deception out there. How do you discern between what's deception and what isn't? Well, the first thing we need to just say is by its very nature, deception is hard to identify. Deception is hard to identify. That's why it's deceiving, right? I mean, deception doesn't go around wearing a nice little name tag that says, hi, I'm deception. I'd like to have a conversation with you. No, deception is like an imposter. Deception is like stealth, you know? It takes by trickery anyone who may be unaware. Those who deceive, get this, 
are convinced that their deception is what's right. Those who deceive are deceived into thinking that their deception is not deception. You tracking with me? (laughs) They will believe that something is fact and be quite convincing that something is fact when in reality it's fiction. And what deception does is it mixes a little truth with the lies. And I've got to tell you, as I said before, we're all vulnerable. We're all vulnerable because deception is so enticing. I, uh, I, I've shared with you story after story. You might get sick of my stories about you know, my little small farm that I grew up on as a kid. One thing that you may not know about this little small farm I grew up on a, as a kid is that for a season, for a time, we actually had a game farm license. You know what a game farm license is. We had to put a little sign on our garage that said we're an official game farm, and, uh, and, which means we can have wild animals. So we had raccoons, we had a fox, but the main thing that we wanted to have on our property that were wild were pheasants. And so we used to trap pheasants. And then what we did was you, you get this uh, chicken fence and you make a cone. And the one side of the cone is maybe about this big around. And it goes down into a cone. It's maybe about four feet long when it's all said and done. And at this end of the cone, uh, you make it so that you can only get at it by going through the cone. And you put like chicken feed and little pieces of corn and stuff down in this little cone tip. And then you find brush where you think pheasants hang out and you just stuff it in there so that the only way that they can get at the chicken feed and the corn is through the opening of the cone. And so pheasants, you know, you set it there and then every day we'd walk around and see if any pheasants are in our traps. And sure enough, there'd be some just sitting there in those, in those cones. Well, what happens is these pheasants are like, wait, I, what is... What is... I think that's food. I smell food. I see food. What is that in there? They're trying to get at it, you know, and they're looking around. And then they realize, I think the only way in there is this hole over here. You know, kind of, oh, look at that clear shot. And they go right into it. And they start eating the food. And then they realize, whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, uh, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Do you know why pheasants get stuck in a cone? They can't walk backwards. Little tidbit for you on pheasants. Once they're in that cone, they can't get out of the cone. And they just sit there. Kind of funny when you'd see them, like, here, here I am. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you know. But you know, what if we got to the end of our lives? And we realized, wait, what? Whoa. It's like I'm stuck. Like I'm trapped. I was trapped. I, I've been led astray. It was all a lie. It looked so good. It looked so delicious. And I I figured a way of going after it. But I've been deceived. If we knew someone was walking into a cone that would be pretty hard to back out of, how would we fearlessly love them? Well, you know, (laughs) to each his own. I mean, I don't, you know, they do their thing, I do my thing, and and I mean, if I say something, I'm going to look pretty silly, you know, I'm going to look kind of goofy, or, uh, you know, they're going to think I'm an eyeball, or, is that the loving thing to do? 
The loving thing to do is, wait, stop, stop. That's a trap. Trust me, you're, you're deceived. You think it looks really good, but it doesn't. It's not good. And here's how we know that it's a trap. Deception departs from the truth of God's Word. I know that sounds so basic, but it's so amazing how many times we allow ourselves to be moved away from the guidance of God's Word. And at the very core, it's a, depart- it's a departure from the living Word, who is Jesus Himself. Remember John's Gospel in John chapter 1? When, when John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Jesus is the Word of God. The living Word of God. Even in 1 John chapter 1, He's called the Word of Life. And in 2 John 7, notice what He says here. This is Many deceivers have gone out into the world. And here's how He describes those deceivers. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. You know what John was addressing here? was a specific wrong teaching, false teaching about Jesus in His day. It was called docetism, by the way. The docetists of John's day were teaching that um, Jesus you know, was born and He grew up. And then remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist that the Spirit of God descended upon Him? Remember that? Well, the docetists taught that that's when Jesus became the Christ. That when God descended on Jesus, the God part of Jesus was named as the Christ And then the body, the physical part of Jesus, the man part of Jesus was the Jesus part. And then Jesus became Jesus Christ and His ministry started. And then that's when He taught with power. That's when He cast out demons. That's when He healed people. And the docetists taught that this is how it happened. And then when Jesus was going to be crucified, the docetists said there's no way that God can die. And therefore, when Jesus was hanging on the cross to die, the Christ part, or the God part, left him to die on his own. And this was what John was addressing. He was saying, no, no, no. Again, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Jesus Christ together is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. He didn't just come in spirit. He came in the flesh. And to say otherwise is anti-Christ. The one who says this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Not to be confused with the capital A antichrist that some people associate with the false prophet in the book of Revelation. But we're not going to go there. We can spot deception if it represents Jesus Christ in a way that is contrary to the truth of God's Word. And there are many views out there even today. Like for instance, some would say that Jesus, sure, Jesus is God, but He's small g God. He's not capital G God. He's not on equal level to like God God. That's not true. Others would say that Jesus is not the all-sufficient Savior. That Jesus died for kind of the big sins, but those little sins you've got to kind of make up for. Not true. Still others would say that 
Jesus is the Savior, sure, but He's only the beginning of your salvation. That you trust in Jesus, that He died on the cross for your sins, that kind of gets you started. But if you really want to be in heaven when you die, then that you've got to add to that all these extra things. That's not true. That doesn't align with the Bible. Deception departs from the truth of the Bible. There's a lot of truths out there, but this is our filter. With the core departure being from Jesus Christ, the true Jesus Christ, as it says in the Bible. So how do we defend ourselves against deception? How do we defend ourselves against deception? I think there's four ways that John lays out for us. Let me run through them. First of all, we have to stay alert. Stay alert. Because like I said, deception, it's hard to spot. We've got to keep you know, vigilant. Here's how John wrote it in verse 8. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished. Here is the hardest part about dealing with deception. This is important for every one of us to hear and to own. You and I can be our worst enemies. You and I can be our worst enemies when it comes to deception. Notice that John said, watch yourselves. It's so easy to point out how other people are being deceived. What we must do first and foremost is to look in the mirror and say, how am I deceived? Truth is, you and I, we will go to great lengths to maintain that our convictions are right. We will desperately desire our lives to be consistent and untroubled. We kind of want it nice and soft and smooth. And we will put up huge barriers to reject any message that implies that we're wrong. We will literally forfeit allowing others to love on us by not being willing to accept their correction. If we don't watch ourselves, if we don't stay alert, or as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away from the truth into lies and deception. We're at the core of that drifting away. What we drift away from is, is, is from including Jesus in all that we are, in all that we think, and all that we do. As Colossians 3.17 says, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Do all. Like a balloon. If you... Uh, Ever put a piece of tape on like a helium balloon and you, you poke a little hole right through that tape and then what happens immediately? You poke a hole through that tape in a balloon and pretty much nothing happens. I mean, nothing visible anyway. But we all know that if you just let that go and you don't put another piece of tape over that hole, that uh, that balloon will slowly but surely deflate. It'll lose its shape. It'll ultimately end up on the floor and deception is like that. It's, it's subtle. It's not something that comes, boom, I'm deceiving you. 
But it's slowly but surely, if we're not alert, we will drift into it. And so when we say that we are going to be loving fearlessly, we mean that we are going to stay alert and go after deception. Both in speaking to it and allowing ourselves to be spoken into by others about it. We will passionately pursue what is the truth so that we don't live in lies. And this is the filter by which we will turn. Well, secondly, we need to stay in the race to win the prize. That's right out of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, that uh, you know many run, but only one wins the prize. Therefore, run in such a way that you might win. Running a race to win the prize means we're going to go at it till the very end. till Jesus returns or we go to be with Him. Run all the way. And that's easier said than done because in the good times it's easy, in the bad times it's hard, but we're saying we're going to stay in the race. We're going to stay in the race. We're going to keep going. Stay the course. Here's how John wrote it in verse 8 again. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. That full reward, by the way, is not heaven when we die. The reward of just heaven. It's actually uh, a reward when we get to heaven. It's the reward of reigning with Christ. It's not just about entering into paradise. It's about inheriting something in paradise. It's about having ownership in paradise. So we've got to stay on our toes. And we've got to stay the course. Keep, keep in the race. And to make sure that we're running in the right, on the right course, we've got to stay in good biblical teaching. Look at verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. By the way, to not have God doesn't mean like we don't have God, we're not His children. It means that we're not in touch with God. It means we haven't come to that throne of grace. It, doesn't, it means we haven't drawn near to Him. But to stay close to the Father and the Son, we've got to stay in good biblical teaching so that we can experience their love and that we can love them back. You know, I uh, read years ago a, a story of a guy that wrote a letter to the editor. And uh, I was like, where's that story? I, drummed it, I dr drug it out, found it. And uh, it goes like this. This churchgoer wrote a letter to the editor. And he said, you know, it makes no sense to go to church. I've been going for 30 years. I've heard over 3,000 sermons. And for the life of me, I don't remember a single one of them. <laughs> I'm wasting my time. And the pastor is wasting his time. Yeah, that kind of stirred up a little bit of you know, years ago when you'd write letters to the editor and there'd be sort of this bantering back and forth. And so people were writing letters into the editor and some were in support of his view. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't remember anything that I heard, you know, over the years. And, and others would say, no, 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 that's not right. You're supposed to, you know, listen to sermons and listen to Bible teaching and all that kind of stuff. And so it kind of went back and forth. And then there was one letter to the editor that seemed to dispel the deception of that kind of thinking. This guy wrote in, he said, I've been married for 30 years. <laughs> and I've had about 22,000 meals. And I don't remember an entire menu of any one of them. But they all nourished me. And they gave me the strength I needed to do my work. I know if my wife wouldn't have prepared those meals and I didn't partake of them, I would be physically dead today. 
Likewise, if I didn't get the biblical teaching that the pastor prepared when I went to church, I would be spiritually dead today. You can see why I drum that up. That'll preach right there. Especially for a preacher boy, that'll preach. If we don't stay in solid biblical teaching, and I'm humbled by that thought, we, we actually won't die spiritually right away. No. It'll be kind of like that balloon, you know. It'll look okay for a while, but eventually we will. If we're not fed the pure spiritual milk of the Word, as the Scriptures say, over time we will dry up in our connection to the Lord. But what will happen really quickly if we step away from that is that we will become extremely vulnerable to deception, to being deceived. So to defend ourselves, we've got we've to be learning the Word, we've got to be studying the Word, we've got to be hearing the teaching of the Word. And finally, we need to stay away from, if we sense it, we need to stay away from what we think might be a deceiver. We've got to stay away from deceivers. I mean, if, if, if we smell a skunk, don't go try to play with it. <laughs> Run away from it. That's what John writes in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Now, by the way, the house here, this is written to the church at the beginning. He's called this, the, the church is called the chosen lady and her children. And, uh, and here he's bringing that back up again. The house here is referring to the church. And he, John is basically saying, don't let anyone come into the church and just share whatever they want to share. There's got to be some sort of vetting to make sure that they're sharing what's aligned with the Bible. But what about each and every one of our houses? We get people that knock on the door with teachings that don't align with the truth. What should we do with people that come knocking at our door and don't have the truth? Well, I want to challenge us by saying, don't let them in. Don't offer them coffee. <laughs> Chances are you're not going to sway them. Matter of fact, I'd suggest just say, well, I'm a born-again child of God and I don't need what you're offering. Sound kind of cold? Look at the results. If we give them a greeting and we invite them in and we interact and interact and interact. Look at verse 11. Here's the results. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. When Jill and I lived in Mesa, Arizona, uh, that is the second largest Mormon population in the world. And, you know, Mormons go door to door. And uh, they're Mormon missionaries. And uh, I had some friends that had come out of Mormonism, and they said, yeah, actually, uh, when you go to a place and they challenge you and they're, they're talking Bible with you and you get a little bit stumped as a Mormon missionary, you go back to your leaders and you tell them what happened and they say, oh, okay, the next time that happens, here's how you handle that. Here's how you move the conversation. Here's how you push them more toward what we're trying to tell them about. And if that's true, and it is true, if we keep dialoguing with them, aren't we, as verse 11 says, participating in their evil deeds? Now, even as I wrote this out for myself, I thought it, it just seems to rub me the wrong way. And quite honestly, I haven't lived up to the very thing that I've thought about for many, many years. I'm just drawn into, well, you know what? I, I've got an education, you know? I, they want to throw Greek words at me. I'd be happy to talk Greek with them, you know? I, I think that I can probably... You know, I can probably win the argument. So I've had these conversations over the years. 
I've thought, yeah, I can get them cornered, you know, I can get them cornered. I, I, can, I can convince them that they're deceived and that, and that this, what I'm telling them aligns with the Scriptures. And even though I've done that a lot, I've never gotten anywhere with anyone. I've never convinced a person who brings a deceptive message that they're wrong and I'm right. No one has accepted the truth. And I realize there's exceptions to every rule. But I would say there's got to be a little different way that we can maybe go at it. How can we actually go at it in a way that might please the Lord? I suggest we offer a public debate. I don't know who'd be up for it, but I'd be up for it. But it would be public. You know, it'd be a planned deal. I think that would be kind of cool. But just to wink at their lies, or just to kind of patsy around them, I don't think is the most loving thing to do. If we're going to fearlessly love and be gracious, I think the best thing to do is to do what John did, and that's be very direct with what the Bible says. And don't keep dragging it out, just like John did in his letter here. Well, dealing with deception. I got to, it wears you out. It can wear you out. It's, oftentimes it can be a daily deal. So how do we have delight instead of the drain of deception? Well, notice the contrast that, that um, John writes here in verses 12 and 13. He says, Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Your chosen sister here is another church that John is at where he's writing from, writing to this church, and he's saying, listen, all of us here, we, we know what you're going through. We know you guys are dealing with deception out there. We know that you're kind of getting bombarded, and we want you to know we care for you. We want you to know we love you. The way to have delight is to be with one another. The way to have delight is to keep connected in Christ. To keep connected in Christ. And I love John says, I want to come to you to speak face-to-face. -face. I love that face-to-face -face stuff. And here's why at the end of verse 12. So that your joy may be made full. Isn't that true? When you're around other Christians, like-minded Christians, and you're fearlessly loving one another, isn't that true that there's this sense of joy being around people who are you know, like us in many ways? You and I, we need each other. We need each other. We need each other. We need to connect with one another. You know those signs that are out in our lobby. Connect, serve, grow, go. We need each other to connect with one another. To have relationships with one another. We, we need to serve with one another. To do it together. Not that we're just doing our own deal, but we're doing it with one another. We need to grow with each other, you know, understanding the Bible together, wrestling with it, working it out, going after what's the truth, what's not the truth. We need each other to grow, not just to know the Bible and the head knowledge, but to connect in the heart with the Lord. And we need to go out together, you know, we've got this great commission that God has given us to go into the world, go out there with the love of Jesus, go out there with the good news of Jesus. We need to go out together. Kyle mentioned it earlier. <laughs> when he talked about home discipleship groups, 
And if you're not in a home discipleship group, I'm just encouraging you to get, get in one. Uh, it's just, a, I mean, God wants us to do this together, right? And the best way to get to know each other and to know other people is where we just build relationships uh, under the authority of Christ. And they're just small groups of people that meet throughout the week. Uh, a lot of times they're either talking about the sermon or they're going through their own studies and it's just a great time to get together. I'm in one. I love it. I think it's great. and I, I know it, it'd be great for you. And again, if you're not in one, on that connection card, there's that little box. Just check HDG or Home Discipleship Group, whatever that says, and, and give it to the welcome desk and somebody will get a hold of you. Okay. Oh yeah, put your name on there too. That would be helpful. <clears throat> And, and some sort of contact number or something. But the reality is we are most vulnerable to deception and deceivers when we are isolated and we're not in relationship with each other. Where we're not loving each other fearlessly. We can spot it. If, if we can stay on our toes, stay alert, we can make sure that we're in good Bible teaching, we can work really hard at making sure we don't get deceived. And even with all of that, we are vulnerable. Vulnerable like everybody in this world is vulnerable. As world history has shown, we are a people that are vulnerable to deception. And the biggest and most foundational ingredient that we need in order to stay secure and not be drifted toward lies is that we just fully rely on Jesus. How are you doing at relying on Jesus today? How are we doing at relying on Him? How are we doing at making sure that Jesus is in the center of our relationships? How are we doing at making sure that Jesus is the one that we turn to for wisdom. Lord, I need wisdom. Help me. How are we doing at keeping short accounts with Jesus that when we do something that we know offends Him, instead of kind of pushing Him aside, you say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Cleanse me from this unrighteousness. How are we doing at staying close to Jesus where we truly, in the depths of our hearts, say, I need you, Jesus. I really need you. How are we doing at that? The only way to make sure that we're not deceived is that we keep our eyes open. We understand what deception is. We align our lives and we align our thinking on what God's Word has to say. We become students of His Word. But at the very core of it all, we know Jesus personally. You have a personal relationship with Jesus. When I say personal, I mean you know Him. You see Him working. You, 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 you know that He's carrying you along. You see that, he, that, that He's not just someone on the side of you. He's like, He's in. He's inside. Where you live a life of dependence on Him. How are we doing at that? The easiest way to do it is to pray to Him. Giving our lives to Him, giving our thoughts to Him, giving our struggles to Him. Keeping a short, short leash on not talking to Him. You know, we talk to Him where you talk to Him often. So I suggest we talk to Him right now.